And Tony will be reading, uh, preaching from the full uh, chapter this morning. And so, yeah, I think this is one of the, the times that reading it together in full uh, is really, really beneficial for us. Hearing it once now, and then as Tony goes through it uh, a bit later on. So if you have that open before you, and it'll be on the screens as well, I'm going to read all of Matthew chapter 18, if you'd like to follow along. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in the kingdom, their angels will always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of the pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. 
When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had the same mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. This is God's word. As the team comes forward to lead us in another song, as we prepare our hearts to hear from God's word preached to us this morning, uh, let me pray. Father, may your spirit drive your word into our hearts and minds this morning. As we sing to you... Please turn in your Bibles to that passage that was read to us a little earlier from Matthew 18 as we dive into it uh, together this morning. It would be great to have it open in front of you so you can follow through, make sure what I'm saying is consistent with what Jesus said, which is always a good thing to do. Well, I'll never forget the day a Christian businessman in the area told me this story. His customers often would come and talk to him. He's kind of a pastoral guy, caring uh, fellow. And so people would often come and share uh, different things with him and share their lives with him. And sometimes the topic of church would come up in these conversations. And on this one occasion, referring to a local church in our area, some people who had come to chat to him said this, I would never go to that church because they are always fighting with one another. I would never go to that church because they are always fighting with one another. And I remember thinking at the time, and I still do, how tragic. How tragic. Don't you think? For those outside of God's kingdom to think that's the last place I'm going because... They're always fighting with each other. What a tragedy Tragedy, if the distinguishing mark of a church is disharmony and disunity and conflict and harshness and so on. Why is it so tragic? Well, I think it's tragic not just because we kind of don't like it, but because it's not what Jesus intended his church to be like, is it? It's not what he intended. The church that Jesus builds, that we've heard about in Matthew's Gospel, is to be a community of people who are being made new by him together. In actual fact, and this is astonishing, it's meant to be an expression of his eternal heavenly community here on earth. I don't know whether you realise that, but if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, you're a part of Jesus' eternal, heavenly community, and this gathering is an expression of that community here on earth. Kind of ramps up the responsibility a little bit, doesn't it? But it also ramps up the wonder as well. Now, as we've seen in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is busy building his church, his gathering, the new people of God. And he says the very gates of hell, the powers of hell itself, will not stop him or stop it. 
He's the new Moses who forms and leads the new people of God. And he will go to great lengths to bring it about as he keeps telling his disciples just a few verses earlier uh, than our chapter today. He reminds them again of what's coming for him to establish and build his church. And they were gathering in Galilee. Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they kill him and he will be raised on the third day and they, the disciples, were greatly distressed. These are the, this is the lengths that Jesus will go to build his church. But what will this new people, what this gathering of Jesus, this church, what's it meant to look like? What are to be the distinguishing marks of those who belong to Jesus? To put it another way, what does God take seriously about his church and therefore so must we? What are the key things we're to be marked by as those who have been redeemed by him? Well, in a room like this, if I kind of threw it open for answers to that question, we might get maybe a hundred different answers. Many of them might be, you know, somewhere near the mark. But Matthew 18, Jesus gives us three things that must distinguish us as his followers. Three things as we're enabled by him that we need to pursue together as his people. And the first is this. His new community is to be marked by humility before God and one another. Humility before God and one another. In actual fact, Jesus makes it clear, doesn't he, in verses 1 and 2, that humility is where it actually starts. You see it there? At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That sounds like, uh, you know, the kind of brewing of a conflict, doesn't it? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who's going to be most prominent, most significant, over and above everybody else? And calling a child to him, he put him in the midst of them and he said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter of the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The disciples want to talk about greatness. Jesus starts by clarifying for them and for us how you enter the kingdom of heaven. The disciples want to talk about the status or the position that they might have in this new heavenly community that they think Jesus is putting together. But Jesus speaks to them about the conversion they must first have in order to enter it. Calls this little child and pictures using this little child as an object lesson what it looks like for us to be saved by Jesus. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work it out, do you? The, the lesson's relatively obvious. What's a child like? Well, a child is not full of self-sufficiency, first and foremost but they are rather dependent on another. A child by necessity lives in confident trust in those who love them and care for them. And they do so every day, well, almost without thinking about it, often with a kind of joyful humility, generally speaking. Now, maybe you're thinking to yourself, what kind of children did you have? 
Have you been at dinner time at our place? Um, let's be careful not to take the object lesson too far, right? But Jesus says, doesn't he, unless you turn, notice that, unless you turn or change, or another way of translating it, unless you be converted from your pride and self-sufficiency and your grasping for power and significance, unless you be converted and become like a child, dependent, humble, needy, looking to someone else, namely Jesus, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not, I think is what Jesus says, doesn't he? You will never. So it starts with this humility. That's the starting place in terms of our place in the kingdom of heaven. It's how we enter the kingdom of heaven. It's how we belong to the new people of God by turning from our self-sufficiency and coming independent and joyful trust. Like little children coming to Jesus who saves his people from their sins. Like little children coming to the one who dies in our place to do for us what we most desperately need and what we cannot do for ourselves. And perhaps to our surprise, Jesus says that this is what greatness in the kingdom of heaven looks like. Did you notice that? Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. What a strange thing to say. Who's the greatest? Which one? No, no, it's not which one. It's whoever humbles themselves like a little child in this way is the greatest. What a strange thing to say. How can that be? What could he possibly mean? Well, I'm going to have a go at it. I think he's saying this because this is actually humanity at its best. This is humanity at its peak. Not living self-centred, self-exalted, sin-pursuing lives separated from God by all that but living in joyful, childlike dependence, confident in his love for us in Jesus. Uh, this is what right relationship with God looks like and this is what you and I were made for. So whenever we humble ourselves like a little child and come to Jesus' independent trust, we are at our peak. This is human greatness if you like. And whoever does it is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This is humanity at its peak, living in dependence and trust on their God who loves them and has provided everything they need, including redemption and salvation and forgiveness and peace and the list goes on. Have you done this? Have you come to Jesus like a little child for what you could never do for yourself? Have you seen him on the cross providing for you what you could never provide and doing for you what you most importantly and primarily need to be made right with God? 
to, to be redeemed, to have your humanity fully redeemed and restored as he brings you into right relationship with your heavenly father, the one who loves you and made you, and the one who you were made for. And notice, friends, this is not something we do on our own. He says, whoever, whoever himself, uh, becomes like a little child, whoever humbles himself, it's like this little child is the greatest. And verse 5, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. See, there is this, there's this humility that we have in terms of coming to God but it then works itself out in a humility that we have towards one another. Do you see that? Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. This is a lovely picture of Christian fellowship or the church. It's those who have humbled themselves like little children receiving others who have humbled themselves like little children and coming to God together humbly and to one another with humility. It's miraculous, friends. This is what Jesus intended. This is what it's going to be like, actually, when we find ourselves before the throne. It's totally unique. It's breathtakingly beautiful. And it's what Jesus intended for his church. That's why it's so tragic, friends when the opposite happens among those who call themselves followers of Jesus. That's why it's tragic. And maybe some of you here today have experienced that. And I, just, I feel sorry if that's been your experience. And, and, you know, we ought not to be presumptuous either. You know, like, we are three steps away from not treating each other like, is pictured here as well. So we need God's ongoing grace to be at work amongst us, don't we, to, you, to unite us, as we heard earlier, in the gospel and for the gospel and to keep sustaining that and keep us in this place of humility before him. The church is to be marked by humility before God and towards one another. Now, I don't know whether you've noticed, but there seems to be lots of talk about different ways you can become your best self. Have you noticed that? In fact, if you Google it, I saw one list, which I thought would be exhausting just to read it, uh, 101 ways to become your best self. And of course, the idea is to become the best version of you. You know, the gym will do that. They'll, they'll, they'll tell you that they're going to do that for you as well. They're going to give you the best version of you. And then, you know, the psychologists will tell you and all the rest of it and all these different... And some of those things under God's general over, overarching goodness in his creation may actually, you know, improve things. But I want to suggest to you this morning that this is us becoming the best version of you. What Jesus pictures here. When we humble ourselves like a child and live in dependence on our God who loves us. That's the best version of you. It doesn't get any better than that. Oh, there's a progressive you know, you know, improvement because one day he's going to fully change us. And there'll be no struggle with anything in terms of living that out. I wonder, how do you see yourself today in relation to God and others? 
you see yourself like a child living in joyful dependence on Jesus who loves you and gave himself for you? Is that how you view yourself? It's a pretty sweet way to see yourself. What about others? Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you see them as other joyful, dependent children of God? Do you receive them as such? Or do you create us and thems? Or, you know, as Jesus says in verse 10, do you despise some of his little ones? Oof. You know, looking down on them, criticizing them, not receiving them, holding them at arm's length. Or are you totally caught up in pursuing greatness in this world because it'll keep telling you all different versions of what greatness is? Being successful at everything and better than others or wanting to at least be said of others that you're better than others. But when we do that, we become less human, do you know? It actually corrupts us. It actually denies our humanity. Jesus holds out before us today a picture of humanity at its best. Invites us to turn and become like a child and live in dependence. Either for the first time or for the 50 millionth time. He invites us to do that today. To walk with humility before God and one another. That's where it starts, but what we see next is that it's something we need to pursue together because there's some things that threaten it, mainly our sin. So the second thing that ought to mark God's people is a fidelity towards God with one another. Now, fidelity, to be fair, it's not a word that we use much anymore. What does it mean? Well, it means faithfulness to a person or a cause or a belief. Um, we don't use it much at all. Perhaps the last time we might have used it would have most likely been in relation to marriage and fidelity in marriage. We're probably more aware of the opposite of fidelity, that being infidelity. That's more kind of scandalous, and we probably hear about that a bit more. Oh, there was infidelity in that situation, so we know what fidelity means. But just as infidelity in marriage is devastatingly serious, so infidelity towards God is also serious because the beautiful picture of humanity at its best that Jesus gives us here is so easily ruined, like the church that I heard about all those years ago. And I think that's why the language here that Jesus uses is so strong. Look at verse 6 or verse 5. Uh, and following. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him or her to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's fairly strong language, isn't it? Cause one of my little, my followers to stumble and to sin. You're, that's not a good thing to do. I mean, having a millstone tied around your neck, that's a massive rock, and thrown into the depths of the sea, that's, that's a positive. 
situation to what will happen. So the millstone's a better option. Does that make sense? Jesus is very serious, isn't he? Clearly, for Jesus, unchecked sin in our lives is not something we're to take lightly. But rather, we're to be vigilant in the fight against it, both individually in our own lives and collectively together. Look at uh, verse 10 to 13. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now, we're not going to get into what that means. Like, there's lots of ideas, but essentially I think you can come uh, this far with it and to say God sees when <laughs> his little ones are in danger. Right? Let's just, let's just uh, settle with that for now. He goes on to say, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Can you hear the heart of God for, for his followers who might go astray? So there's a seriousness on the one hand, better millstone thrown around your neck, than to cause one of his little ones to stumble. And then there's the heart of God who wants to go after the one who is straying, maybe because of temptation that someone's put in front of them at the same time. So the heart of God is behind all of this seriousness about sin that someone might not stray and perish. So individually there's to be this ferocity in us about sin. Do you see it there in verse 8 and 9? And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. So what's Jesus saying? Don't toy with sin. Be ferocious about it. Be vigilant about it. Because it will corrupt you, it'll defile you, and it could lead you all the way to separation from God for eternity. He actually says if you're blasé about it, then you may, it's possible that you're not actually his at this point. That is, our fidelity towards God is reflected in our vigilance towards sin. Our fidelity towards God is reflected in our vigilance towards sin. So if we're blasé about sin, we might not actually have any fidelity towards God at all. That's a bit startling, isn't it? I remember a number of years ago on one of our men's camps, our speaker uh, had to pull out last minute. His, I think his mum was sick uh, in South Africa, so he had to cancel and jump on a plane. So we ended up watching a bunch of video talks by different speakers. And I'll never forget a story that Matt Chandler told 
uh, along these lines. He told the story of a model in South Africa who was doing a photo shoot with a male lion. Now, I don't know what they did uh, with the male lion to kind of pacify him, whether they just gave him, you know, seven days' worth of meat that day uh, and fed him up so he was no longer hungry, even if there was, you know, a relatively nice uh, meal right in front of him. He couldn't fit it in, so he wouldn't do anything. Whether they gave him mild sedatives, I don't know. But, you know, long story short, the lion actually turned on her and mauled her. I'm pretty sure she survived. But the point is obvious, isn't it? And this was the point Matt Chandler made. You don't relax with an apex predator. You don't relax with an apex predator, and the same is here. You don't relax with sin. But we do. And we get comfortable with it. Where the Bible says, kill it. Put it to death. Not in your own strength by the power of the Spirit, but put it to death. Don't play with it. If an apex predator threatens you, you put it to death. You kill it before it kills you, right? So serious is this war we must wage. And it's clear from what Jesus says here that at times we might need each other to triumph, which is what Matthew 15 says. To 20 is about. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the classic, classic passage that uh, is used to understand perhaps uh, a degree of church discipline that might happen every now and again. But do you notice it doesn't start there, it starts with, if your brother sins against you, if, and, and that is sinning against the body of believers, if your brother starts to stray, what are you to do? Tell others about it? Have a gossip session? Oh no, share it as a prayer point maybe. No, you're to go. You're to go with the heart of the Father who doesn't want anyone, any of his little ones to stray, with the humility of a little child, who also knows that you're vulnerable too to sin, and you're to go and you're going to try and call them to come back a different direction. And if they, don't, if they won't listen, then maybe take a couple of others, just in case, you know, for clarity's sake, you know, maybe you've got it wrong, and in taking one or two others with you, you know, the situation becomes even clearer. And then if, it's, and then if that doesn't work, it's to be told to the, the body of believers that are committed to one another in that place to follow Jesus together. And then if that doesn't work, that the person who remains unrepentant then they are to be related to as an unbeliever because they're actually acting like one and living like one and 
So we need to be consistent. It doesn't mean we don't talk to them. doesn't mean they're not allowed in the room, all those things. But the, the nature of our relationship is different. It's a constant call to come back into the people of God. Now, something's really important that we need to say here. Uh, Jesus is not talking about garden variety sin here, right? Uh, the Bible talks about love covering a multitude of sins. And you're going to need to use some of that today even. Even today as we gather. I'm, maybe I'm going to do something that's a little bit annoying. You know, maybe I don't know, I'm going to offend you. you know, that's a garden variety sin. And um, I'm hoping that your love will cover that. And it's all good. We're doing that all the time with each other because we are sinners who are a work in progress, right? So that's not, Jesus is not talking about those. He's talking about those who will cause people to stumble. Significant sins that will cause people to go astray, that will divide and destroy perhaps God's community, God's heavenly people, who will make a mess of it and defile it and corrupt it. Those types of things is what end up being at the stage where they might end up before the church as a whole. And the hope is always, as the Father's heart is, that a person would be restored. So the second thing Jesus says his church is to be marked by is fidelity towards God with one another. We do it together. We grow together. We, we speak into each other's lives often together and we spur each other on. So lastly and uh, briefly, the third thing the church has to be marked by is forgiveness from God to one another. Now, once again, at this point, you've got to love Peter, right? He speaks up here. He's got a bit of a problem. So, uh, question, kind of like what I was like in class, always with the hand up. Um, he sees a problem. Uh, Jesus, this, this sounds great, this kind of, that we're going to be restoring people who sin against us. I kind of like that idea. Just got one question. How many times? I mean, the Pharisees say three. They reckon three is pretty good, you know, one would be stingy, two's generous, three, whew, real generous. How about we do seven? Seven seems good. It's the, it's the number for perfection. Let's do that. Jesus' response is perhaps a bit shocking to Peter. And from a human perspective, I think we would all acknowledge unrealistic. Seventy times seven. It seems that Jesus is speaking of a forgiveness of an altogether different kind. And that's what we see in the parable, isn't it? I'm not going to go into the parable too much, but the story's fairly obvious. Some guy's forgiven massive debt. I think it's roughly a lifetime of wages, wiped clean. And then someone owes him a couple of weeks or a month or maybe three months, and he's harsh and unforgiving and cruel uh, to them. And the point of the parable is pretty straightforward. God's forgiveness towards us is unlimited in Christ and people who have experienced God's unlimited forgiveness are called to also express unlimited forgiveness to others. This is something the church is to be marked by. Forgiveness. 
Peter needs to see, as we do, the massive debt of sin that God has forgiven us in Christ and to reach the obvious conclusion that for us then to withhold forgiveness makes no sense at all. This is something Jesus says marks his church, the church that he is building. Forgiveness from God. That not only is something we enjoy and experience, but it's something that shapes us and flows from us to others. In fact, our capacity to forgive, I think you can see from this parable, is directly tied to our grasp of our own forgiveness from God. And the parable would point to this both positively and negatively. It would say, if you know the magnitude of Christ's forgiveness for you, you will forgive others. You will be able to. No, yeah, it's not humanly realistic, but we're not talking about human things here. We're talking about the supernatural grace of God in someone's life who turns them from not being able to forgive to being able to forgive when they otherwise wouldn't. The parable also says that if you don't know or haven't experienced God's massive forgiveness of your sin, you will struggle to forgive. You probably won't be able to. Important question though, and maybe it's already in your mind. Does forgiveness and Jesus' call for us to be a forgiving community mean I have to overlook sin and evil and its consequences? Does forgiveness that Jesus calls us to here mean I have to receive someone or welcome them back into my life and you might say back into the safe places of my emotions and my heart and who I am if they don't own what they have done? Well, this passage doesn't mean that. That's for sure. It doesn't mean you have to receive someone back into your life who has done horrendous things to you when they won't own it. It does mean you need to forgive them, but it doesn't mean you need to be reconciled to them. And they are two very different things. Notice Jesus is not talking... Uh, what Jesus is talking about here is people who actually you go to and they hear you and they... Come back. That's Peter's problem. He's like, yeah, what about all these? If they don't come back, well, you've told us what to do there. But what if they do come back? How many times should I forgive them? And Jesus is saying, well, if someone comes back in repentance and owning what they've done, then 70 times 7. But yeah, as I said already, forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. They often go together, but sometimes one can be absent. Forgiveness is something God calls us to regardless, confident of his perfect justice one day on the evil that was perpetrated. Reconciliation is something God calls us to when two parties humbly seek it. So you can forgive someone but remain unreconciled to them. And biblically, that's a legitimate place to be. But a much better picture, and I think if you're in that spot, it's probably something you would much prefer 
that two parties come and humbly acknowledge the wrong, perhaps the perpetrator in particular. And a reconciliation might begin to be able to happen over time. So in conclusion, what would we love people to say about us as a church? People in the community, people who have had interactions with us, people who we work with, people in our neighbourhood. What would we love them to say about us? Wouldn't it be great if they said something like this? If I was going to go to church, and I'm not sure I would, but if I was going to go to church, I think I would go to that one. Those people seem like really humble in their relationship with God and one another. They don't seem to be kind of talking about themselves all the time. They just want to keep talking about Jesus and how great he is and how much they need him. Those people seem like they really love God and want to please him with their lives. So they're kind of, they're kind of pretty, pretty focused on, on pleasing God and not kind of grieving him by living in ways that God doesn't want them to. I think I'd like to go to that church. Those people seem like gracious and forgiving. They always talk about how much God has forgiven them. Maybe their God could forgive me too. Wouldn't it be great if that's what people who kind of in some way have come across this church would say? Or something like that. Let's pray that that might be the case. Father, we come before you this morning and we just recognise that the picture of your new people that you are making, forming around and through your son, the Lord Jesus, yeah, it's breathtaking. Like little children who come and live in dependent trust on their Heavenly Father and who do that together with others and draw attention to the greatness of God and his love and mercy and his awesome holiness and greatness. Father, I think if we're honest, we would say, I don't know how we can do this. But it starts where we started, by coming as little children and depending on you to change us and grow us and shape us more and more. To help us to see sin as it really is. Something so destructive, so defiling, so corrupting, so horrendous that we would be vigilant, not perfect, but vigilant because we want to be true and faithful to you. Lord, maybe we're sitting here today and we've, we've, we've struggled with forgiveness and we're not sure how to do that. Help us to 
experience afresh the magnitude of your forgiveness of us. That we might be enabled to forgive in ways that are otherwise utterly impossible. Maybe we're here today and we've been treated terribly by someone or maybe more than one person and we don't know how to handle it. Father, would you help us to know your love in this? Would you help us to get to a place where we can let go and leave the justice of it all to you and so forgive from our own hearts? But Lord, also help us to rest in the knowledge that unless they repent fully and truly and authentically, you don't call us to overlook what has happened. Father, we need your grace and you are happy and willing to give it to us that we might be your people and glorify your name. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.